Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined as always by Nizar Hassan. How's it going, Nizar? I'm good. Good to have you back. Uh, thanks, thanks. Uh, I I was gone for a very minor surgery. I, I think you you put it like very very kindly uh, on, <laughs> on 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 the podcast last, last week. You said I was resting, which almost sounded like I was dead. Uh, but but <laughs> no, I, I was just like sort of drugged out, recovering. But yeah, uh, I I'm I'm back. Ready to go. Uh, and by the way, last week's episode, I really enjoyed it. And I, I really am kind of angry that I missed Mona Harab. <laughs> if, if you guys didn't, if, if you missed the episode last week that Nizar did with Mona Harab, go back and listen to it because she's sort of like kind of a legend <laughs> in this town. Like she, she's very well known. She, she has like this sterling resume of, of all this research and everything. And, and, and the episode was genuinely very, very fascinating about public spaces and politics of that. Uh, in, and uh, it was something that I, uh, even in my like somewhat drugged out state really enjoyed listening to <laughs> last glad week. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, th- this week we've got, we've also got like a, a great episode uh, for you guys. We're going to be talking about the South Lebanon army later on and, and what all went on with that. And especially with this latest uh, thing that happened with this person who was associated with that army coming back to Lebanon and getting arrested. Uh, we're, we're going to dive into that and explain exactly what all of this is about. But of course, first, we have to get to the news. Uh, and to start out with, we have two things related to the media that happened this week that are quite important. Uh, number one, Future TV is suspended. It is no longer an operation. Now, we, we knew that they were having problems. This is Future TV. It's Saad Hariri's television station, like his mouthpiece, one of the major TV stations in the country. It has been, for financial reasons, suspended. They say they're going to, like, within a few months, they, they'll, like, reopen or something, but we don't know what that's going to look like or if that's going to happen. This is really a huge deal. Future TV has been around since 1993. This is, like, it was one of Papa Hariri's, uh, Rafiq Hariri's, like, really big, you know, m- movements into the media sphere, mm-hmm. al- along with uh, Mustaqbal, uh, the the newspaper. Now, Mustaqbal newspaper also shut down this year, uh, shut down in January. So we're seeing sort of this sort of the end of the Hariri media empire. It, it's ending yeah. before our eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which is a major, major deal. Um, and, and of course, this also has consequences for people on the ground. There's some 350 workers that are basically out of a job now. Um, they weren't getting paid anyway. So, you know, in, in the a last certain, two years, which is insane, That's right? Fucking uh, insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and all the more insane because we know that hurry, he has money. So why isn't he paying? Well, typically the way that owners do this kind of a thing is they draw a, a very strict line between what is their personal money and what is, you know, a company's yeah. money. Uh, at, at least when times are rough, this is how the lines get drawn. Uh, when times are good, maybe not so much. <laughs> That's a good observation. So, so yeah, a really sad story for these 350 people who, uh, you know, weren't getting paid and they're now out of a job, basically. Also in media news, uh, you know, th- things, things aren't completely terrible on the media landscape. We do have a new newspaper, uh, which started up, I, th- I think, a couple months ago, Nidal Watan. But they are under attack for a headline that they had the week before last. Uh, that it was like a front page headline, and it, and it said something to the effect of, new ambassadors in Ba'abda, welcome to the Republic of Khamenei. Uh, it, instead of <laughs> welcome to Lebanon, right? And and this headline, of course, like it, it was, you know, it, it caused a lot of controversy and everything. 
but it caused so much controversy, though, that the editor-in-chief and the responsible director of the newspaper were called in this week, this past week, uh, for interrogation at the Justice Palace. And then later on in the week, on Friday, Beirut's district attorney, Ziad Abu Haidar, is sort of like, we, we've spoken about Ghadaoun before on, on the program. He's the same job. He does the same job that Ghadaoun does, but instead of for Mount Lebanon, he does it for Beirut, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he filed a case against uh, Nidal Watan on Friday. And so this is important because, of course, this is just a continuation of basically the state putting the the media in in its crosshairs and going after the media for for things that they publish. Yeah, and it's but it's kind of I think I think they expected this. I mean, Nidal Watan. It might be also part of their their strategy of entering the market. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very controversial thing to say, but I feel like any newspaper to to make headlines in Lebanon for people to hear about it needs to be controversial. Needs to have some lawsuits. Uh, right, right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Uh, also this week, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon indicted Salim Ayash in the cases, uh, in several uh, cases of uh, attempted assassinations and assassinations. Salim Ayash is one of the uh, four people who are on trial for the murder of Rafiq Hariri. And now they have linked him to the attempted assassination of Marwan Hamede in October 2004, the, the attempted assassination of Elias Moor in July 2005, and the actual assassination of Georges Howey, uh, the head of the Lebanese Communist Party, in June 2005. So the, the this is going to be like, the, the SDL isn't just about Rafi Kariri yeah. and, and that assassination. It's also, you know, any cases that they say are connected to that, uh, they, they also can try. And so this is one of those cases that they're going to try. And apparently they are going to go after Ayesh. And they have also issued a call for uh, victims uh, any members of the public who uh, who were harmed by these attacks to come forward, and those victims have until December to come forward to the court to apply to give their testimony. And for backgrounds, those who are interested can go to our episode on the STL specifically. I forgot the number of the episode, but you will find it. Uh, really quickly, Cabinet met a couple of times this week. On Tuesday and Wednesday, on Tuesday, they made some more appointments. Uh, so this this basically added on to the previous week's appointments. The previous week, they appointed like a bunch of judicial people, that, like a new head of the Court of Cassation, a new head of the Sure Council, uh, a new state prosecutor, basically a new attorney general. This week, they uh, continued that and appointed a head of the Investment Development Authority of Lebanon uh, and some other officials with IDAL, also uh, a new head of the Higher Council for Privatization. And, and once again, we saw people coming out who were unhappy with this. The Lebanese forces was again unhappy with this. Samir Jaja, the head of the LF, uh, came out and said that they didn't have any problem with the, the people who were actually appointed. They, they were actually, you know, considered them like, oh, these are good picks. But Jaja said that the problem is with the process. And we, we don't have a proper vetting process and nomination process in, in place. And we need to have that. It, it doesn't matter if we happen to get lucky and get a couple of good guys this time. We need to have something that is systematically, you know, gives us the best people available to fill these slots, which which I, you know, sympathize with. I think that's like a pretty good argument, honestly. Mm. In Cabinet's second session on Wednesday, uh, they talked about the budget, the 2020 budget. Back to that again. Uh, it was their first <laughs> budget session held for 2020. Um, according to Wal Abu Faur, who is the industry minister, they approved 14 of 32 articles. So, I mean, most likely getting the pro forma stuff out of the way. 
And, and it looks like, like they're trying to get things done on time this year, which is a really big deal. The way things are supposed to happen is cabinet is supposed to take it up and finish it by mid-October. And then they pass it off to parliament. And then parliament has till the end of the year to pass it, right? This has not been done. Like, I'm not sure the last time actually that it was finished by the end of the year, but the last time that it was done within constitutional guidelines was 2003. Wow. The, the 2003 budget was signed on the 30th of January uh, of 2003. And so it wasn't actually by the end of the year, but it was within like the constitution has this clause that says, oh, you can go a month over and there's a special procedure for this, like extraordinary procedure for this. So the last time that we actually had a budget and did it by the constitution, even using extraordinary measures in the constitution, the last time that happened was 2003. So if they actually do that this year, that'll be pretty big. You know, that'll be pretty amazing. Noting, of course, that there were, I don't know, 12 years, right? Without a budget being passed. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But I mean, th th this is also the thing, though, with that, because people talk about these, you know, 12 years, oh, we didn't have a budget for, you know, uh, or, you know, from 2006 to 2016, there was no budget. But back before then, like the 2005 budget, it wasn't like, oh, the process went smoothly back then. No, the 2005 mm -hmm. budget was passed over a year late. It was passed in February of 2006. So <laughs> you have to go back even further to to a point where the Lebanese politicians really had you know, things not together, but more together, you know. It's, it's good we have some, like, traditions to maintain and protect. <laughs> so you're, you're, against, uh, you're against passing the budget on time? Is that... Um, so that's the sort of process on the 2020 budget where we're at right now. Cabinet's also supposed to meet on Monday to continue uh, with talking about that. According to Saad Hariri, the prime minister, he says the 2020 budget is going to be part of like a three-year plan. So the 2020 budget is sort of like linked to the 2021 and 2022 budgets, which is something that a lot of people have called for. Like we need, we need actual plans, right? We need, we need long-term, longer-term planning than just a year out. So this is a good sign. And Hariri also reiterated this past week that uh, there's no new taxes in the 2020 budget. We'll see what happens with that. I, I think we're going to have to actually like in a future episode, dive in and see what exactly there is in the 2020 budget and, and go through the minutiae of that, because uh, it is really important, uh, the, the actual substance of that mm. for, for a lot of different reasons. So at, after the uh, Wednesday session of cabinet, Hurry jetted off to Saudi Arabia uh, for a very quick uh, trip for visiting France, where he met with Emmanuel Macron. And both these countries are really, really key for support to Lebanon. Uh, laughing really, at my yeah, I really like the Macron part. I mean, uh, part I said. I mean, I'm just so proud of you. <laughs> oui, oui, monsieur. Fromage. That's yeah. Uh, any, anyway, uh, both France and Saudi Arabia are very, very necessary for like support to Lebanon, right? And France uh, is because of the the Cedar, the the Paris Four conference that happened in April 2018. Hariri's trip there was supposed, supposedly it was about sort of like unlocking the $11 billion that was pledged to Lebanon back in April 2018. But I haven't seen anything yet. Uh, and we're recording this on Saturday morning. So who knows what's going to come out all, of all this. But so far, I have not seen anything concrete come out of this yet. Uh, France itself, uh, in, in addition to organizing and hosting the conference, pledged 550 million euros 
So we're, we're waiting to see, like, when is this money going to start flowing? Uh, maybe we'll see something uh, later on in Hariri's trip or, you know, hopefully in the coming weeks or coming months. Uh, that's the idea. Uh, but nothing so far, concrete at least. And then also, speaking of Saudi Arabia, we got news this week that they may actually be considering some sort of financial assistance to Lebanon. Uh, the, the Saudi finance minister gave a, an interview to Reuters this week, and he said that his country is in talks with Lebanon to provide financial assistance. He didn't give details, but reports suggest that there could be some sort of high-level ministerial meeting in October where a bunch of deals are signed uh, or, or some sort of agreement has come to. Um, th this may actually be around the Future Investment Initiative conference that is held every year in Riyadh. Mm -hmm. you, you, may, you may remember this conference from yep. last year. This is where uh, <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman made this very off-color joke about like Hariri being detained when he was on stage with Hariri. It was very cringy and because, I mean, he had detained Hariri like not even a year prior to that, right? Uh, back in November of 2017. Allegedly, man. Allegedly. 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 Uh, and, and so maybe the Saudi support may come around that same time uh, in this October conference, which Hariri is scheduled to attend. Uh, according to other reports, uh, this is from the Central News Agency, they said that the Saudi financial support could come in a package of quick aid that Lebanon would receive uh, in the next few weeks in the form of deposits placed at the central bank. So we, we don't really know what this is going to look like or if this is even going to look like anything. In the Reuters report itself, they quote an analyst who cast doubt on all of this. You know, he said he's skeptical about all this because Saudi Arabia, like there have been rumors and talk about Saudi Arabia supporting Lebanon financially before, especially uh, back at the beginning of this year, right after Qatar pledged mm. uh, $500 million. We heard this, you know, these rumors, well, maybe Saudi Arabia is also going to pledge some money, but that never really came to anything, right? Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, I'm a little bit skeptical too, because uh, a lot of things have changed. You know, people talk about, you know, like 2006 when the Gulf countries, you know, gave a lot of aid to Lebanon uh, in the aftermath of the uh, Israeli war on Lebanon. But, but th this time around, you know, Gulf players are in a far different position, number one, than they were back then. Their, their finances are really tighter and they want more bang for their buck. Some of them see Lebanon as dominated by Hezbollah, or at least that's the signals that, that uh, some give off. They, they don't want to prop up you know, a Hezbollah-friendly government, right? Yeah. Uh, so, so there's that. Also, the United States is it's, it seems more skeptical of Lebanon as well for you know the same for the same reasons. And so the question there is a question as, uh, as to the U.S.'s willingness uh, and I mean honestly competence to put in the diplomatic legwork necessary to you know bail Lebanon out this time around, and and then. Also, uh, just the amount of money required this time around would just be an order of magnitude larger, it seems. Mm. You know, like $5 billion, you know, that, that was the amount of money that Lebanon lost in FX reserves just in 2018. Now, 2019 has been flat so far because of a lot of extraordinary measures that Riyadh Salami has done. But $5 billion would basically buy a year's time, yeah. which isn't a great investment for a lot of money, right? So you need a whole lot of money and these people are maybe a little bit more reticent. Uh, you know, these actors in, in the Gulf maybe are a little bit more reticent. The U.S. is maybe a little bit more reticent to, you know, go this extra mile for Lebanon. So for me, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. It's possible. You know, let's let's hope that something like this comes through. But th this also could just be 
one of those things that one of those carrots that's just there and just never really materializes. And finally, speaking of financial matters and the economy, uh, gas stations closed Wednesday in what they the, the owners called a preemptive strike. The, the issue here is a lack of dollars. So gas is imported. So that means it's paid for in dollars. But station owners sell it to the public in lira. Uh, so they they have to exchange these lira for dollars to buy more gas, right? Yeah. But the, there's a problem. There's a shortage of dollars in the country, which means that they're having a really hard time making this exchange. Banks aren't doing it as much. And some of the sarraf, some of the um, money exchangers are charging higher rates than the official exchange rate. Uh, and of course, th- this is making the, the gas station owners very unhappy because they can't they can't pass this cost on to the consumer. Prices are set by the government. And so they shut down shop on Wednesday, which, of course, led to like massive lines on Tuesday, people uh, trying to get gas before everything closed up. And this is, this is just another one of these signals that, you know, all is not well as far as the, the stability of Lebanon's financial system goes, as far as the stability of the lira peg goes. Um, and, and, and just in general, you know, you, you probably shouldn't have this massive of a problem uh, in, in just terms of liquidity in the country. Yeah. And it's important to note here that uh, fuel importers in Lebanon is it's kind of an oligopoly of, uh, you know, a few major companies it's it's not a free market of any kind so it's not right. like one importer would accept lira and then they, they can coordinate and do things as if they are in a monopoly and uh, the monopoly in the telecom sector um, the two companies that are kind of half public half private have also started doing the same kind of measures they are asking their retailers to pay them and or to buy the products that they buy from them in dollars um, and this is a major like controversy because first of all you're a half public company how would you not accept the official currency of the country and then second because the same as you were saying to the about the gas stations retailers like class gets all the money in lira from customers right Right. i rarely go and pay in dollars and then they have to go and and exchange the money for high rates or whatever so they're facing the the, the same problem and they even went on strike as well i think on the same day or the day after the gas stations so it is a big, big problem, and we see how like um, the government will be managing or interfering to to avoid more of these strikes. Because these strikes, the main problem with them is that apart from just causing like long lines and just inconvenience, they also um, damage the confidence in the economy, which is the thing that we need the most at this, this moment uh, in, in Lebanon's history. Now, the most important thing is confidence in the economy to prevent a collapse. Yeah, and that's sort of the one of the problems here is that the government doesn't really seem to be doing anything about this. And BDL also just doesn't seem to be doing anything about this. It seems as though BDL is more than happy to not have a lot of uh, liquidity in the market right now, which is eyebrow raising, to say the least. Okay, so that's it for the news. But this week, we really want to get into something else that's been going on that that really stirred up some some old memories and like some very hurtful memories for a lot of people regarding what happened and what went on during the Israeli uh, occupation of South Lebanon between the 70s and 2000. Yeah, so we talked last week about Amr Fakhouri, a former officer, high officer in the uh, South Lebanon army, uh, coming back to Lebanon weirdly without having any like um, 
consideration for being arrested or whatever because he had already been uh, there was already uh, an arrest warrant against him and uh, a verdict in absentia for 15 years and he just returns to Lebanon all of a sudden so people know his name he was a very notorious figure in the South Lebanon army he was responsible for uh, the Khiyam prison center the, the, the detention center that we will talk about in more detail in a bit uh, that used to imprison a lot of Lebanese fighters and civilians from 1985 till 2000 uh, till the with, till the liberation of of the south so there was a lot of outrage a lot of protests against him people were calling him the butcherer of Khiyam and saying that he should be you know uh, executed or arrested or whatever he was arrested and he's now under trial and also apparently another army officer uh, high-ranking officer apparently brigadier general has been arrested as well for facilitating his return because there should be something that happened on a very high level in order to kind of cancel you know the warrant and the verdict against him in a way that allows him to come back without being you know without worrying about his record Anyway, um, there were some things that fueled this tension. Also that, you know, people were circulating photos of him, of this guy, Fakhouri, with uh, Army Chief uh, Joseph Aoun in an event that Joseph Aoun was attending in, in Washington or somewhere in the States and with Sam Ismail. But these were minor things. But the most important thing that kind of lit up the Lebanese internet was Suhab Shara entering the debate. And Suhab Shara is considered an icon of Lebanese resistance because she tried to assassinate uh, Antoine Lahad, who uh, who was the head of the SLA, who we will talk about in a bit as well, and she's considered like uh, she's called Zahra al Janoub, the flower of the South, and she's really one of the most romanticized and appreciated resistance icons. And she took part of the debate. Uh, she accused the FPM of being like the political force that is kind of driving the the t- orientation towards like the direction towards normalizing things with uh, normalizing relations with Israel um, by using these uh, debates um, you know as uh, as an opportunity to rethink the history of who is a traitor or a collaborator or collaborator or not because the SLA was basically an Israeli proxy militia in Lebanon we thought actually it's it would be a good idea to just like dive into the history and tell what the SLA was about it's not very famous how it started etc and specifically what they did the horrible things they did and why it's like um, it's it's an issue that is very sensitive to a lot of people yeah this, this is one of those things in Lebanese history that runs deep like like a lot of things uh, you know from the civil war and and after the civil war yeah especially that a lot of people escaped with the Israeli army during the withdrawal in 2000 and we will talk about that in the in the discussion but this is the, the the main issue. There's a lot to be resolved, not only in terms of people's memories, but also in terms of what we do about Lebanese people who escaped, SLA people and families and other civilians who escaped with the Israelis back in 2000. Yeah. So let's start. Let's talk about the SLA. It started in 1976, in June 1976, with a defection from the Lebanese army by Major Saad Haddad. So it was basically Haddad who was the main figure. Uh, not Lahad in the beginning. And um, he announced the creation of the Army of Free Lebanon. It was only called the SLA in the mid-80s after Lahad took over. Haddad was um, a major in the army. He was born in Marja'yun in the south, and this is where he was based. And he was the head of a 400-troop army unit um, based in Qlai'a on the southern Lebanese border. And he claimed that what he was when he announced you know, his, his army of free Lebanon, what he was doing is was to, to stop the expansion of uh, Palestinian guerrillas who were fighting Israel from the from South Lebanon, which was a reality that we talked about in many episodes, actually, 
that related to the civil war, which was a reality that uh, came to be after the P- Palestinian Liberation Organization was kicked out of Jordan. So it moved its main base of operations against Israel to South Lebanon. So to give some context, it was the second year of the civil war and a time of important defections. There was a big defection before that of Haddad on the other side of the spectrum. So Haddad was a Christian figure, a Christian right-wing figure, pro-Israel, etc. But there was a defection of Ahmad al-Khatib, a colonel who had led a majority Muslim kind of bunch of troops. Uh, At their peak, they reached something like 2000, I think, into forming the Lebanese Arab Army, a faction of the Lebanese army that joined the fight alongside the Lebanese national movement. So the left kind of and the Muslims and the Palestinian forces and supported a coup d'etat against the president uh, Suleiman Frangie etc they dissolved in 1977 when the Syrians kind of kidnapped their leaders but whatever it was a time of defections it was the time of a breakdown of the Lebanese state so back to Haddad's rebel army Israel needed a strong ally and for for its operation because it knew that Lebanon was a new battlefield with the, with the with the PLO coming here it supported the creation of the SLA it was a coordinated effort clearly and uh, despite uh, the defection from the army Haddad remained and officially an army officer until a few years later when uh, he announces independence state. We'll get to that. Um, so Haddad's forces fought against the Palestinian factions and its allies during the first couple of years. Uh, it was like the thir- second and third year of uh, the Lebanese civil war. And during that time, Israel had been targeting PLO sites for a while. But the turning point was when Israel invaded Lebanon and the Operation Litani in 1978. It invaded South Lebanon up to the Litani River with the aim of clearing the area for PLO fighters. This was the area that is, you know, if you are based in this area, you could reach Israel. So this is basically the most important part for Israel to be securing. And uh, they also wanted to help Haddad's forces kind of get, uh, take control over this area. They, there was a ceasefire agreement with the PLO and there was a UN Security Council Resolution 425 that established UNIFIL. So Israel left most of its sites after the ceasefire and they left them to Haddad's forces rather than, you know, to uh, some official uh, Lebanese authority. And after the operation in 1978, a new actor, UNIFIL, was, uh, you know, emerged in, in, in South Lebanon. So Haddad also had to kind of navigate their presence and assume his power. Uh, over the geography and uh, it was actually a few a very sour beginning for the relationship when he shelled the headquarters of UNIFIL and killed uh, eight soldiers Um, and at many instances after that there were some tensions with UNIFIL in 1979 Haddad announced uh, a a state that was never recognized by anyone called free Lebanon state as an independent kind of thing Uh, he was uh, dismissed from the army after that um, and what he did, basically, what he was trying to do was say, uh, we are not only a militia or def- an army de- defection initiative, we are a government, we're a professional government of the sort. And, and I mean, on the ground, weren't they sort of, I mean, they had control of the territory, they were functioning as a government, right? Yeah. Obviously, I mean, collecting taxes from people, forced taxes from people, right? Uh, from ports, any ports that were used under the range, for example, they would uh, have a tax on them. So, for example, if you're importing through a port that they can potentially bomb from their bases, you would have to pay them taxes and taxes to the militia that's running the port and taxes to the other militia that's half running the port. It was it was this kind of system. Um, 
But uh, what allowed them to actually do this, you know, to say, okay, we have a state now, was uh, an Israeli policy that uh, what had basically an open, bo- an open border policy where Israel allowed SLA people to, to cross the border, use the Israeli market, export goods from the Haifa port, uh, seaport, etc. And this was kind of the economic and geographical kind of uh, justification, not justification, but kind of the enabling com- factor for this to happen. But yeah, I mean, beyond that, it's not clear whether Haddad really believed he was he was starting a state or not. Uh, it was like a mini extension of Israel and Lebanon ruled by a purely Maronite militia. So not a great, you know, long term vision, I'd say. After the Israeli invasion, Israel obviously invaded Lebanon again in 1982, the major invasion that reached much more than the previous one. And the PLO was basically pushed out of Lebanon. Bashir Ismail was elected president and then assassinated. And then Hadad's for- and then there was the Sabra and Shitila massacre in the Palestinian camps in Beirut. And Hadad's forces, according to many historical records and eyewitnesses, took part in the Sabra and Shitila massacre as well. Which you would think is weird because, you know, there's supposed to be South- a South Lebanon thing. What the hell did they have to do with things happening in Beirut? But no, there was, it was ju- they were just like basically doing some of the dirty work for the Israelis. Because the massacre, everyone knows, it was not by Israeli soldiers, but it was under the kind of the supervision and the, the, and the blessing of Israel. And I, I, under actually literally the lights of the flares of Israeli soldiers. So Right, right. So it was a proxy for Israel doing like the things that the Israeli army could not uh, do directly. In 1984, Haddad died due to cancer, and his Free Lebanon state was kind of transformed into the SLA. And Antoine Lahad took over. And this is why the SLA is known as Jaish Lahad, uh, after Lahad himself. And he's, he's the one who is most remembered rather than uh, Haddad. And from 1985 onwards, the SLA controlled the administration and the South Lebanon security belt that was established by Israel. It was It's basically the Israeli-occupied part of Lebanon that remained occupied until 2000. It was almost 10% of the Lebanese territory. It was around 385 square miles. In 1988, there was an important event that happened. Suhab Shara, which we talked about in a, a while ago, um, she was 21 year old back then. She was part of the common Lebanese Communist Party. Had been which tra- the Communist Party has like deep roots in the South as well, it should be noted. Yeah, and it was part of the Lebanese, uh, the Jamul, the, the resistance movement that contained many parties and factions uh, against Israelis that was different from, you know, Hezbollah and Amal. So Soha was a 21-year-old back then. Uh, she was part of the Lebanese Communist Party and she was disguised as an aerobics teacher to infiltrate the family of Lahad. Like a step up, step down. Yeah, maybe that or gymnastics, jacks. but it's wrongly like translated. I don't know. It's just like huh. some sports teacher. All right, all right. And then she um, she infiltrated the family this way. And then one one of the evenings, she was at the dinner table, and Lahad arrives, and she shot him twice, uh, once in the chest and once in the shoulder. But Lahad survived. Uh, he didn't die, and uh, actually she was jailed, obviously for 10 years in the Khiyam detention center that we mentioned and we will talk about now. And uh, re- later on, after 10 years, she was released through an exchange, through a prisoner exchange uh, deal. Um, and then she wrote her biography, uh, La Résistante, in French, and it's available in other languages, I think, about the time in jail, etc., if people want to read it. But this is how Sahab Shara became kind of 
the icon through this one operation because it's not like doing a, an operation against a, a vehicle, an army vehicle or whatever. It was like right, right. long plan and very personal, etc. So I was saying during the, the, the 15 years from 85 till 2000, till the liberation, the SLA was tasked by the Israelis to create and manage Khiyam prison camp, uh, the detention center. And this is the, mo- the thing that the SLA is most remembered for in the, in the minds of the Lebanese. And the Khiyam detention center was previously a French barracks. Uh, it was turned into a detention center by the SLA in 1985. And so it's in the town of Khayyam, uh, which is in Nabati, down, down in the south. Yeah, yeah, it's near Marjayun, but in the Nabati uh, geographically. So this was the detention center where most resistance fighters and also civilians who disobeyed the SLA or Israel were taken to. And it was mostly known for the torture that happened there rather than the imprisonment, simply. Um, so it wasn't just uh, people who were taken in by the SLA that went to this SLA-controlled facility. Also, Israel brought prisoners there and handed them over to the SLA. I mean, we don't know exactly how they coordinated this, or I don't know, but it was the main detention center for anyone involved in anti-Israel or anti-LSLA activities okay. in the South. So yeah, the answer is yes, I think. Obviously, no one was had any charges or trials or any procedures, judicial procedures. It was all detention without any procedures. And um, Amnesty International, among other organizations, have described the actions by the SLA and Khiam as crimes of war, uh, war crimes. And just quickly, like some of the details of how horrible the situation was, things that we know from the letter of Amnesty International on the day after the liberation uh, from Robert Fisk's reporting for Independent and other sources, we will put them in the description of the episode. So the most important job of this detention center was to get information out of resistance fighters and people close to the resistance movement, um, be it the Hezbollah's resistance or the Lebanese resistance, uh, whatever. Uh, and it was heavily based on extreme interrogation. The SLA men used to cover prisoners' head with, filth- with filthy hoods, uh, take off their clothes, tie them to whipping poles through electricity wire or electricity wires and douse them with water depending on the weather you know if it's uh, winter with cold water if it's summer with very hot water and giving them electric shocks in their chests and genitals as part of the interrogation suspending and whipping them using electricity wires it's basically insane like all kind of bad torture that you can think of was happening there one prisoner told Lorient Lejour that during the torture sessions they would operate a noisy engine in order to cover the, our cries of pain and to make sure that the residents living nearby would not hear there was also something that obviously there was starvation and very bad food and minimal ex- minimal exposure to daylight and something that was really insane was like they had these small metallic cages that they used to put prisoners in while they were handcuffed and these boxes were 75 centimeters tall and 75 centimeters wide. So they were literally, it's, it's, you look at it and you can't imagine how a human being can be in there. They would be, people would be handcuffed and put in there. And then they would beat the, the, the you know, the outside of this metallic box for hours as what part of the mental fuck? torture. Yeah, and this is all like by SLA people. And who was supervising all of this? Fakhouri, uh, the butcher of Khiyam. <laughs> and um, this is why people, like, you know, they have so much hatred towards him and, and so it's such an emotionally charged thing. Do, do we have um, any idea how many people 
went through this prison during the time? Yeah, it was 5,000 people who went through it, but a lot of them were released based on exchange and other th- deals, etc. At the end of it, it was only 144 people who were left, but overall it hosted around 5,000 people. I mean, 5,000, that's a, that's a lot of people for a small country like Lebanon. And so you, yeah. you, you actually have, this is sort of woven into a lot of families' fabrics here in Lebanon. People actually know people who are in their family related to people who were tortured at Khiam yeah. or they know people maybe their neighbor or a friend of the family was tortured at Khiam so this is something that is recent it's in you know living memory and and something that's very obviously you know deep and deeply hurtful that touches a broad swath of Lebanese of, of the Lebanese public Definitely. And uh, Fakhouri's role in it specifically was uh, was important. Uh, former inmates have reported how he was supervising the torture sessions, etc. And have reported he was responsible for the death of at least two people who were killed when um, they re- suppressed the, the rebellion that was happening in, in, in the Khiyam prison by throwing gas canisters into the cells. So two people suffocated to death. The cells were already horrible and barely had any kind of uh, ability to breathe. Uh, this is how horrible the situation was. And the Israelis have always like, like repeatedly claimed that we're not, they were not involved in the management of it or the practices that happening inside. or they, they were kind of distancing themselves from the SLA, saying it's not our responsibility. But actually, ridiculous. we know this. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. I mean, politically, we know that's ridiculous. But also, actually, factually, that's completely wrong. Uh, because, first of all, Israel was the only sponsor of the SLA. All the resources and training, etc., came from Israel. The detainees used to be taken to Israel and back to Khiem for interrogation. So there was very close coordination about who is detained and why. Prison exchanges that we talked about involved kidnapped Israeli soldiers, not SLA members mostly. So it was actually Israel was kind of the one who was deciding the fate of these prisoners. And for all, for all intents and purposes, Khiam was a part of the Israeli security apparatus at the time. Definitely. And most importantly, a high court case in Israel brought by human rights lawyers pushed the Israel Defense Ministry to admit that, it, that Israel used to pay all the staff of the Khiam prison, train the interrogators and guards, and provide assistance with lie detector tests. So SLA's management was only kind of a franchise for the, the Israeli brand of you know, detention and torture. And most symbolically, Israel in its war on Lebanon in 2006, it destroyed the, the prison Although it was a museum by then, it was just a place that people could go and see the horrors that we were talking about and be told about them. And Israel destroyed it, kind of erasing the built history of the war crimes. So it, it tells you a lot about, you know, yeah, right, about right. whether they are actually connected to it or not. Um, and I advertise listeners to watch this very super emotional but nice video uh, about uh, Lebanese residents rushing to the Khiyam prison, the moment of the liberation and breaking open the doors with their bare hands and the tools that they found. And without, first of all, the prisoners didn't know that this was happening. They had no idea that there was liberation, absolutely no idea. So one of them said that they, were, they thought they were there to massacre them. And second, the Lahad's people were still on the way. They were meeting some of them on their way, but they didn't care. They were rushing to the prison to see if their loved ones were still inside. It's such an emotional thing. We will add the link to the description. Uh, it's a nice video to watch, I think. But anyway, uh, the end of all of this came in 2000 with the collapse of the South Lebanon army, which happened literally the moment that the Israelis started withdrawing from Lebanon. It was a very sudden, it was a very like immediate thing. At first, there were some low-rank defections, but it then happened like just on the day of the, of the withdrawal of the last troops withdrawing. There was no SLA at all. 
Lahad actually wanted to stay and he he thought he could stay and they asked Israel for the support but Ehud Barak had won the election in Israel based on the promise of withdrawing from Lebanon he didn't want to continue the war I think with, through this proxy that is the SLA right. um, it was a, it was a headache for Israel uh, and it was cheaper actually to bring the, to allow them to come into Israel rather than to in Lebanon because they were, they were paying them money to be doing this and a lot of resources to be doing this job So in a lot of ways, actually coming in as like refugees and having to, you know, deal with their own shit personally, individually as families was a cheaper option. So this is what happened. Most Lahad and most of his people just uh, escaped Lebanon to Israel. It's estimated to be around 3000 people. Or you're, t- you're talking about soldiers and their families and their families. Yeah. And also uh, reportedly a lot of residents who were kind of okay with the SLA, cooperating with it, because people lived under its rule for a long time. So, of course, a lot of people would be would have connections, etc., and they escaped as well. Um, and then, yeah, Lahad died in 2015. There was an attempt to bring him to be buried in Lebanon. People protested, and it didn't happen. So he was buried in France, I think, where he spent his last days. But that's it uh, for the SLA. This is how it started and ended, kind of the most notorious militia in Lebanese history there was there's really very few people who defend the SLA you know it's not like other Lebanese militias that we've talked about people have a lot of emotional connection to this one is quite you know خلص, you know rejected as as kind of crossing all lines yeah but but at the same time this is a story that has not ended yet you you, you talked about just like the the harsh of the 2000 withdrawal and the the fleeing of the SLA down south across the border but but this created a new question of well what do these what do we do with these people what these people are lebanese they are lebanese at the end of the day but they are now in israel do they stay there do they go somewhere else do they come back perhaps Do they have a right to come back? If they do come back, what are the terms of that? Do they need to, mm. you know, face some sort of prosecution or, you know, pay some sort of uh, penalty? Mm. Uh, and, and this is a really big question, you know, and yeah. and it, this is also a question that is very unfortunately infused with sectarianism, right? Because even mm. though, like you say, a lot of people don't really defend the SLA, you know, nobody says what happened at Khiam was right, you know, or good. At, at the same time, you have this, you know, largely Maronite force uh, that that, uh, that was there that, that did all of this. Uh, it, it, and so all of a sudden, you know, if just because they did all of this stuff, does that make them non-Lebanese? Does that make them non-Christian? You know, can you turn your backs on them completely because of mm. this? Or do they have some sort of, you know, claim? Do they have some sort of right to to come back, uh, especially given the sectarian dynamics uh, of the country? Yeah, I mean, you're touching exactly on the most, like, sensitive point about this whole story. And this is what is most politicized. Uh, there, is, there are some sides that have, like, clear stances on it. Um, But everyone is there is there is politicization that is very sectarian based related to the fact that they're Christians and Maronites specifically. Many on many occasions this was kind of uh, this kind of surfaced, especially when uh, Bashar al-Ra'i, uh, the Maronite patriarch, visited Israeli territories back in 2014 as part of his trip accompanying the the Pope. And uh, he was talking to former SLA people and, f- and their families, and he was saying that he completely rejects their, you know, labeling as traitors. He, co- he kind of took their sides 100%, uh, and he called for their um, return to Lebanon. 
Christian force, political forces in general have been very supportive of the of and and kind of eager for the return of this population, mainly because it's Maronite Christian. Kataab has have submitted a draft bill for like pardoning all of these people. Uh, Basile has talked about them as you know forcefully exiled many times. So there is a push indirectly or indirectly for kind of pardoning people or or reducing like kind of reducing to a very bare minimum the sentences to former SLA fighters, etc. Um, and I mean, I I think there's also like a good reason for this as w- as well. You know, apart from the you know idiotic political calculations that you might make about this some kid who like fled with his family he's still lebanese his ancestral village like does he just have no longer have any sort of right to go back to his ancestral village like that seems like really really harsh to me and no one really wants that because i mean the law the lebanese parliament has passed a law that uh, basically stated very clearly that sla fighters would be arrested but will have a fair trial and uh, people who were not involved in the military operations or security operations and family members of SLA fighters can come back to Lebanon will just have to be to register the names of the Lebanese army obviously to to be monitored whatever but will not be like detained or arrested or anything uh, this law has been passed it's yet to be implemented I think because um, there has the, it, it says that the government has to issue decrees for the kind of the implementation implementation decrees and this has been done yet i think there was talks about it earlier this year i don't know if it's done or not but in anyway we haven't seen any significant return of this population yet but the main division is still related to whether we call them exiled or we call them escapees or whatever you know this is like whether they had agency or they were forced to do this and i like i completely agree with what you said in terms of like children who escaped there but also taking it to the more controversial level I would say that a lot of the people who were recruited by the SLA are just similar to people who were recruited by other militias in terms of having um, financial dependency or the need for financial support. The SLA used to pay, through Israel, used to pay $500 for each member. This is a lot of money in the 80s and the 90s. Oh, yeah, wow. Um, It's more than the minimum wage today in Lebanon. (laughs) So (laughs) you can imagine. Um, uh, People were... I mean, that that says a lot about... A lot of different things but yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly people were uh, living under its rule so uh, they had they had to deal with this entity and they might as well you know get recruited if they don't find any other jobs this economic situation back then in the area was horrible so there was kind of from a class-based perspective i i kind of also think that it should not be like oh everyone who was recruited by the sla should be treated as you know a first tier kind of traitor but obviously this this came at the cost of um, displacing more than 200,000 people from south lebanon over this period of time the killing and the torture of so many people so people who made the, gave the orders have to be held accountable and have to be tried that's just uh, there's it's a no brainer no one should be discussing this at all it's just about how we deal with the mass of the population the families and the people who were kind of half associated etc with 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 the sla and 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 i imagine if you are one of these, you know, families that left with the SLA uh, down to Palestine in 2000, then there there are other considerations as well. Just as far as okay, maybe you know you're innocent or whatever. But if I were in their position, I think I would be a little bit afraid. Let's say there were implementing decrees and everything, and you could like fly into Beirut Airport, no problem. Like once you get there, once you touch down, are you know you're going to be seen as your SLA, perhaps 
unfairly blamed for some of the torture that happened at Khiam. There could be certain extrajudicial consequences for you and your family. Yeah. Society. Yeah, that that may not, and 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 maybe maybe not to the to the degree of you know like somebody going out and and carrying out vigilante justice, but you know just like smaller things where you know where people don't treat you uh, as a full member of society, you know that maybe don't make you really want to return. Yeah, I mean this, I th- in my personal opinion, even if they fully allow the return, this will it will not happen, or it will happen in a very limited extent to a very limited extent because of what you're saying. I think this is the most important thing that people think of their sense of social societal security uh, yeah. so it will be a big barrier uh, but in terms of official and uh, like political and uh, like Hezbollah no the policy is very clear uh, from the moment of the liberation actually not even one SLA fighter who turned himself in was killed uh, Hezbollah submitted all of them like turned all of them into the Lebanese authorities there is no like there's no one who says that they want to kill them if they return or anything Hezbollah also has this as part of the memorandum of understanding with FPM uh, about this idea that they want these Lebanese people to come back uh, within or, or, like without you know dismissing the records of, of the criminals or whatever but still like there was this agree- th- th- there is this consensus politically and to an extent, maybe uh, socially, that it's not all of them in the same category. But some, but people like Fakhouri, well, no, really. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, but um, I think what he's getting now is, uh, and what he will get, I hope he gets a good sentence, because no, these people who had command, they are responsible. And for historical justice, they should be held accountable. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's been uh, suggested, and I think it makes a lot of sense that Fakhouri must have received some sort of assurances that he would not be arrested, yeah. right? flying into Beirut airport. I, I think it's very important to get to the bottom of that and figure out, well, who made these, mm. you know, uh, who made these assurances to him? Yeah. Well, why did, why did he feel like he could just not face the consequences of his actions? Yeah, know? exactly. I hope we, could, we know more about that in the future. All right. Well, I, I guess we're, we'll just have to wait and see what happens with this. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for doing all that research. I learned a whole lot this episode, <laughs> Nizar. I'm glad. And we're going to be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.